the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Another week bites the dust. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to the Friday show of the Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about what we believe as Christians and why, questions about anything that you're confused with, questions about life. We'll do the best we can to give you the biblical perspective on those questions. Here's how you can call us. 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free if you're outside the local area by dialing 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app if you're driving in your car. The best way for you to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. All you have to do is hit the call now button at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Normally on Fridays, I tell you about the Bible study that I'm doing tonight, but uh, we're not doing a Bible study. At least I'm not doing a Bible study tonight. Tonight is one of those... um, memorable times for me. I get to ordain uh, a man uh, as a pastor. Uh, Brian Jones has been with us now for, gosh, a long time, 12, 14 years. Um, And um, been teaching Bible studies. Well, tonight we ordain him as Pastor Brian uh, here at the church, and he will be teaching what a blessing it is. These are great, great things. You know, one of the, one of the real rewards, and every pastor would tell you the same thing, one of the real rewards that we get in this life is to watch the hand of God move in and through the lives of those that we love so deeply. Uh, Brian was in the Navy. He was a navigator when we met. He was here stationed and, and got out of the Air Force, or got out of the Navy, and um, found a girl that he loved and they got married and she wasn't going anywhere. I've known her even longer and uh, they will be here uh, tonight. So uh, I get to see these. It's just a a real, real blessing. So that is tonight. Um, This weekend, church weekend, of course, wherever you go to church, go to make yourself available to be used by God. And I promise you, you will be blessed and a blessing to others. Well, let's get right to questions. We'd love your phone calls. So here's our first question. This comes from John from Castroville. Uh, Pastor Ron, I listened to your program today. This email is a few days old, but I listened to your program today. I heard the subject of salvation. I was saved six years ago and began listening to your program. I listen almost every day. I can tell you the Lord was calling me. We've talked about Matthew twenty-two fourteen. Many are called, but few are chosen. I believe the Lord chose me because he has something for me to do. I've recently opened a nursing home ministry for my area, which includes Castroville, Divine, Hondo, and Bandera. I feel strongly that the Lord has called 
called me into this work, and I'm glad to do it. I recently sent an email to a former pastor about spreading the gospel to every living creature, as Matthew 28 tells us, and his response was, I've visited people on their deathbed, and they don't care about their salvation. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He will be held to a higher standard. I will say this, when I came to the Lord, my whole life changed. All I could think about was how I can get closer to Jesus. Um, I have, I take Bible quizzes online. Six years ago, I was lost. Uh, I praise God for my transformation. He called me and I answered. John, I wanted to read this letter, although there's only a brief question in it, uh, for a couple of reasons. First, let me deal with the question. Uh, it's really a tragic response. A former pastor telling people they don't care or, or telling people that the, the people that you're ministering to don't care about their salvation. At that moment, John, nothing is more important. There's nothing more important than their salvation. I mean, they're going to meet Jesus in a moment or two. Uh, and it's our responsibility to tell them. And for this man, as a former pastor, to have that kind of perspective on eternal life and our mission to tell every creature is sad beyond my ability to communicate. Pray for that former pastor. I, too, have visited a lot of people on a deathbed. And what I've found, John, is just the opposite. What they want to hear about is what's going to happen next. What they want to hear about is how they can be sure they're going to be in heaven. And we bring good news, and we bring it at the most opportune of times. So please, 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 you keep telling people about Jesus. If they don't receive Jesus, it's on them. It won't ever be on you. But most people are really interested. And when somebody tells me, I don't care, I've told them, you know, you're going to meet Jesus as friend or foe in a minute or at any moment. And at some point, you have to decide what that's going to be. And I've had the opportunity, John, to lead a lot of people to to Jesus on their deathbed and so you keep telling them. Now, the other reason I wanted to read your question is because uh, I'd love to encourage our radio audience to get involved in nursing home ministry. I've told the story here before, but uh, Paul and I, it was our very first ministry as a couple. Um, before I went to Bible college, I got saved, and all I wanted to do was share Jesus. And the only people that, that I knew that really wanted to hear were in nursing homes. Nursing homes are always looking for people who come and spend some time with the people, if you'll do it consistently. But it was the richest time you can imagine to be used by God in literally the last days and hours of people's lives is thrilling. It's absolutely thrilling. It's an honor. And these people, many of them abandoned by family members, let's face it, nursing homes are not pleasant places to go to. Families, they mean well. They start out visiting often, but but they just sort of fade away. And all these people need is somebody who cares about them. And they will open their hearts and their lives up in ways that you can't imagine. I still use stories from the nursing home ministry. It was 26 and a half years ago. In my messages, some of the most influential people I met were in those nursing homes. And I can't wait till I get to heaven to see him uh, because there's some of them I know are there. So if you're looking for a way to be used by God to fill a need that's being ignored tragically, um, go to a nursing home and make yourself available. Just do two things for me. One, be consistent. Don't go and then figure, well, they're not listening. It's a hard ministry. A lot of them can't hear. A lot of them can't concentrate but it is so worthwhile and that's why they need you to stay and those men and women opened their hearts to me when they were sure I was going to keep coming and Paula was going to keep coming Um, we had a big impact in lives so nursing home ministry is really really an important one John thank you for your question Here is a question from our mobile app. This one comes from Vincent. I have a 15-year-old son who loves the Lord. 
but he's continually asking me to let him listen to secular rap music. Um, parentheses, Vincent says, praise God, he doesn't want to dress that way. I really don't know what to say. I dislike the music myself, but should my personal feelings dictate his likes and dislikes? Uh, Vincent, I, I, I don't think this is a, a war to fight. Um, I think your personal tastes and his personal tastes are obviously completely different. And if your 15-year-old son loves the Lord, this is an opportunity for you to grant him uh, a little freedom, a little opportunity for him to step out in faith as well. Now, there's got to be some restrictions. He couldn't be listening to rap music or hip-hop music with filthy language or hip-hop music that is so super violent, those kind of things. But... Um, I just can't imagine that we're ever in a position to say all you can listen to is Christian music or all you can listen to is worship music. Uh, we have a, a, a pastor on staff here. His name is uh, Pastor Nelly. Uh, he and his wife are both uh, rapper, hip-hop recording artists. Uh, they now write their own stuff and all is very honoring to Jesus. Uh, I don't like the music myself, but I love it when I hear them do it. And the reason I love it is because I know their hearts. I know how much they love Jesus. I know how God is using them. So this is one of those times where, again, this is my counsel. You do what you think is the best. You're the father. I'm not. But this is one of those times when my counsel is to live to fight another day. Just set down the guidelines. No God dishonoring music. No filthy language. Um, no violence. No murdering cops. Those kind of things. Um, but give him a little bit of rope. Let him know that you trust him. That you know he loves the Lord. And now's the time when you're going to given the opportunity to prove that his faith is real. Now, there's also some compromises. There is, I'm told, some pretty good Christian rap or hip-hop music. Um, if he just likes the genre, then there's no reason for him to listen to really ugly stuff. Um, but I think at 15, you got to start trusting your kids a little bit. Let him know that there are consequences if I find you listening to filthy stuff. And you should be checking, by the way, what he's listening to or what he's viewing online. If he has access to a cell phone, you ought to be checking everything that he does on it all the time, and he ought to know that you're doing it. But this is one of those times when you say, you proved to me that you love Jesus, so I'm going to trust you on that. Now, obviously, that's my opinion. I've told people on this radio program, uh, I don't think hairstyles are a huge deal. To me, the only requirement for hair is to be clean. Um, I don't think a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old is is um, um, able to make permanent decisions, no tattoos, things like that. But But choose your battles carefully. With teenage children, you're going to have to say no a lot. So my counsel to our church here is to always say yes as often as you can. Because you're going to have to say no a lot. Say yes whenever you can. Praise God that you have a 15-year-old who loves the Lord. Vincent, I hope that helps you a little bit. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Melissa from our mobile app. Why did Jesus go up the Mount of Transfiguration with only three disciples and not with the twelve? You know, Melissa, Jesus had um, a, a group of twelve, obviously, uh, one of them a betrayer, so he didn't trust him. He knew what was going to happen. But these were men that he gave the responsibility of ministry to. But he also had what's called an inner circle. And that inner circle, James, Peter, and John, and those are the ones who got to witness amazing things um, that the other disciples didn't. Why? Maybe Jesus knew that these were those that he could count on. We know that James, in fact, will be the very first of the apostles uh, in the book of Acts to be martyred for his faith. Um, John is the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, the one who was always closest to him. And Peter, of course, uh, was sort of the leader of the 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 Acts chapter 2 church 
uh, and uh, the one that God used to invite Gentiles in. Uh, and who knows, maybe Jesus gave them more exposure because they were hungrier for the things of God. Uh, but, but whatever the reason, he wasn't sliding the others. Uh, it was uh, the same inner circle that got to see Jesus rise the little girl, Talitha Kume, um, little girl arise. Um, um, it was these three who uh, went into the deeper part of the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was going through the very worst of times. Um, so they got to experience things that the others didn't. And the, the reason is between them and the Lord. But it's certainly not to discredit the others. Um, my guess would be, the Bible says he's a reward of those who earnestly seek him. It seems to me as though these three were always the ones who were pressing into Jesus, those who wanted to be closer to the Lord. Not only did they get to go up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, they saw Elijah and they saw Moses. And they heard the voice of the Father in heaven, this is my son, listen to him. So they got to experience some things, Melissa, that the others didn't. One other comment I'd like to make on this, Melissa, maybe there's a clue as to what happened when they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, James and Peter and John had just seen this indescribable miracle. They come down, the other disciples are down the hill, and they're arguing with the Jewish exorcists about why they couldn't cast out demons. Maybe these were the three with the most spiritual insight. We don't know. But what I know for sure is they got to see things that we can only dream about. 340-9585. Our next question comes anonymously. If God knows who's going to be saved... Why should we be bo- why should we bother to share our faith with people? Well, anonymous a couple of reasons that we should do it, and first and foremost, the overriding reason is that God said to do it. Let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. The Apostle Paul, writing to Philemon, says, "I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith, so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ." In other words, if we're not giving out what we know to be true, then we don't really get it. We don't understand the value of our faith. Anonymous, another reason we should share our faith is because though God knows who's going to be saved, we don't. And we're to declare the gospel everywhere we go. This ought to be um, super high on our list of priorities every day. Who, Lord, do you have for me to talk to today? We should be praying for people. Third, it should break our hearts. I mean, literally break our hearts to know people who aren't going to be saved. And that's the the passion and the compassion that we should reach out and minister to others with. I've told people that I really love and care about. I can't imagine heaven without you. I know you want me to talk about Jesus, but I can't imagine heaven without you. So please reconsider. What are your objections? If they don't want to hear, then they they go on. But yeah, we should share because Jesus said to do it. God knows who's going to be saved, but that's not the basis upon which he chooses us. He chooses us. Because we know he knows we're going to become his. And since we don't know who that is, we need to tell everybody anonymous. Without exception, we need to let everybody know. That doesn't mean that we get in their face. It doesn't mean that we practice being irritating. But if the one thing when you look into people's eyes isn't, I wonder if he's saved or I wonder if she's saved. If that's not going through your heart and mind, then maybe you don't get what God has done for us. I am so grateful I got saved 27 years ago, Anonymous, and all I could think about was, why wouldn't everybody want what I have? Now that I'm a little more mature, why wouldn't everyone want who I have? And that ought to motivate more than anything else. Final comment on this is, read Matthew 13, Jesus' interpretation of the parable of the sower. The seed is the word of God. We who are believers are to scatter it generously 
everywhere we go. Not worrying about what kind of soil it's going to fall on. But we should scatter it generously. That's what comes from our mouth. Not opinions, not worldly solutions. But we need to talk about Jesus. So I hope that helps. Here is a question from Monty. If irresistible grace is true, why isn't everyone serving God? Well, because grace is resistible. That's my way, Monty, of saying irresistible grace is not true. That is one of the tenets of Calvinism, the the eye and tulip. Uh, And the idea that that God's grace is irresistible makes no sense in light of what Scripture says. Paul says, do not quench the Spirit of God. Well, if we couldn't resist God's grace, then why would we have to be told to quench, not to quench the Spirit? This idea that if God wants something done, it's going to get done completely, completely eliminates the idea of free will. And our Bible is full of examples where people are being told to choose. Jesus told people to make choices. Paul told people to make choices. Back in the Old Testament, Moses, Joshua, as for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. But as for you, choose this day who you're going to serve. So God wants everyone in heaven, but he knows not everybody's going to be, which means by definition, we resist grace. Not only the grace that saves, we resist the grace that lives. The grace of God's will. You know, one of the things that amazes me, Monty, is that God gives us the grace to live every day. And even Christians resist that grace. The grace of God that brings salvation. This is Titus chapter 2. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It, this marvelous grace, teaches us to say no to all ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. Who would want to resist that grace? So grace saves, grace teaches us to live, grace empowers us to live. But believe me, none of it is irresistible because we're the ones who have to make the choice. We're the ones who have to partner with God. So, Monty, I hope that answers your question. Four minutes, okay, we got, here's one I can take, another anonymous question. Pastor, on this week, a Texas inmate was executed. He had changed completely so that even the family of his victim opposed the execution, and he was a Christian at the time of his death. Why did God allow him to be killed? Anonymous, there are consequences to sin. I know the uh, story that you're talking about. Um, I was very moved by the compassion of the family of his murder victim. Um, They were so convinced of his experience with Christ and so convinced that he'd change it. They petitioned uh, for a commutation of his death sentence. But God, from the beginning, said, if you take a man's life, your life then will be taken. And the fact that he saved, or got saved, and the fact that he was so radically changed is a result of God's grace to him. It doesn't mean that he's not going to heaven, that he was executed. It means that in spite of the fact that he's going to heaven, there is a price to pay for sin here. I don't know, Anonymous, if you remember, there was another story. It wasn't too long after Paul and I got to Texas, uh, a a woman named Carla Faye Tucker, I think her name was, and uh, uh, Carla Faye was a radical Christian, and she was on death row for a long time. She's the first woman executed in Texas in a very, very long time. Uh, and and uh, she was so involved in ministry, and there was such light coming and such fruit coming. Even at that time, there was a bunch of Christians that were really, really protesting. Um, she's changed. She's been rehabilitated. She's found the Lord. She shouldn't die. But God allowed her to be put to death, too. And I think the lesson for all of us is that sin has consequences. And severe sin has severe consequences. And how fair would God be if in fact he let unbelievers who had changed, who had repented of at least of that sin, if he let them die but at the same time gave a loophole to those who were his. So this was the matter of 
God allowing him to be killed. This was just, we reap what we sow. And imagine that moment when this man stepped off of that gurney or out of his old body and into the presence of the Lord and that sin was completely wiped away. So understand that there are consequences and we have to live with those consequences. We wish it weren't so, but we have to live and sometimes we have to die with those consequences. In 1 John, we're told about a sin that leads to death. Um, and, and I think I've known some people who sinned to a point where death was their judgment. Now, they're in heaven because I'm convinced they were real believers. But their time here was done. And maybe it was just an act of mercy or grace that God kept them from doing even worse things with worse consequences. And maybe kept them from affecting other people, innocent people. In this case, this man was ready to meet Jesus, and he's standing with him at this very moment. We have 30 minutes left in the week. The phones are quiet. Help us out, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up For Life. We'll be back in two minutes. to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585 for your calls and questions. Here is a question from Daryl. What do you say to someone who accuses you as a Christian of being closed-minded? He told me I should be open-minded to new truth. Daryl, what I would say to somebody is, so how's that working out for you? Obviously, this is a, a man who doesn't understand even the basic definition of truth. Something that is true doesn't change. It's that simple. Circumstances change, our world changes, but truth doesn't change. And if a God who doesn't change tells us it was true 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago, it's still true today. So what I would say to him is, he's defeating his own argument. And I would just tell him, you know what? You know that you're missing out. You know your life is empty. Now, they may argue with you. I told you earlier on this program in response to a similar question. That, that I was a really good actor and I would get really angry when somebody would say, I need Jesus, I'm fine the way I am. But my life was a mess. And so if somebody wants to be intellectually honest, tell them, oh, let me tell you something, go find, go look at the, the, the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. If you can explain that away with new truth, then I'll stop bugging you. But to be open-minded means that the God who's called the Ancient of Days, has suddenly woken up and changed his mind. It's either true or it's not, and what people have to do is deal with the eventuality of that truth. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. But those who want to keep sinning are going to reject it. So don't let people shame you or intimidate you or bully you into being open-minded I'm quite content with my mind convinced already of the truth of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected from the dead. So tell me, you know, we Christians have found a truth that the rest of the world is looking for. They claim to be unable to find it, but they just don't want to look in all the right places. So, Daryl, that's what I would say to him. And I've actually been accused of being closed-minded a whole bunch in my Christian life. So it won't be the... Um, last time either. Adam, my question is about marriage equality. We tell people that sex is only for married people and then tell gays they can't be married. 
That seems cruel to me. I don't know why it would seem cruel to you, Adam. Now, I'm going to approach this question like you're a Christian. But if sex is only for married people, and marriage is between a man and a woman, and God is the one who established both humanity and the rules for humanity, how can that be cruel? The assumption, the underlying assumption in your question is that gays are born that way. They're not. If you were born, and we're all born with the proclivity to sin, that's for sure. But if you came to me as a believer and said, well, you know, God made me highly sexual and I need to have sex with people. And so my girlfriend and I were living together, we're having sex. So, so God understands. I would say, no, he doesn't. You're violating his rule. And I would tell you, as a believer, I would tell you that you have to repent of your sin and you've got to stop doing it. Why would my counsel for somebody who is attracted to the same gender, why would my counsel be any different for them? What we've done in our culture, Adam, is we've elevated sexuality literally to the role of an idol. People can live without being sexual. And if their sexuality can't be used in the confines of God's rules for sex, again, as the creator of our sexuality, then that person is expected by God to live a celibate life and find passion and purpose and meaning in his or her service for the Lord, whatever it is they're called to do. But to tell two homosexual men or women that they can't be married is to say these are the rules that are established by God. Well, what am I supposed to do with my sexuality? What you're supposed to do is stop having sex. The Apostle Paul was voluntarily celibate. I wish that all were as I am, he said, that we we can devote all of our strength and energy to the Lord. But he understood that that wasn't for all people. And for those people, God created marriage. I want you to hear my heart on this as well, Adam. It's no more cruel to tell homosexuals that they can't be married, thus they have to refrain from sex, than it is to tell all the single people who are in churches that since they're not married, they have to refrain from sex. Galatians chapter 5 says that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And we've got to decide if we're going to honor God by walking in the Spirit or we're going to give in to our flesh. You don't need to know all of this, but I've got an exercise routine. Number six is the the number of man. So when I'm counting down, I get to number six. Um, The only role I have in in working out my salvation with fear and trembling with God is, I, I use Paul's terms, beat my flesh, beat my flesh. That's how I count down to six. And then the next time I'm at six with the next exercise, it's no to me, yes to you. Well, that's what we got to do. we got to say no to our flesh so that we can say yes to Jesus. And so if it seems cruel to you, you don't understand God. Now, Adam, if you're not saved and you're just asking this question, maybe with a little skepticism, I offer you Jesus because it's a much better plan for your life than we can ever come up with on our own. Hope that makes sense to you. There's nothing cruel about anything that God says. He tells us the things we can do for our good. He tells us the things that we cannot do also for our own good. Here's a question from our email inbox. From Steve. Uh, Yesterday, you and Paula took a call from a lady who was calling about her sister, Laura. If Laura is a Christian, why is she staying with someone who is drinking, abusing her, and now taking hard drugs? Does she think she is anchored to him because of her wedding vows and promises? 
I heard you talk about women in abusive relationships before, and I always ask the same question. Is it because they have weak faith and don't understand the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in them, that gives them the courage to walk away from the relationship? It's very frustrating to hear these things. When I hear these plights, it makes me just want to go over and pop the husband in the nose and then save the wife and help her find a safe place to be. Can you pray for all of us who have a fix-it mentality so that we can better harness our efforts in a more productive way? Steve, not only will I pray for you, but I think this is really, really important. I think what one of the things that, that you need to pray for, we all need to pray for, and I'm like you, I'm a really logical guy, and I, I, I've said on this program twice this week already that one of my biggest frustrations is women who will not leave abusive, physically abusive relationships. Um, we beg them to go. We offer to help them, um, but, but their faith just hasn't got to that place yet where they trust Jesus because of the overwhelming nature of their circumstances. In many cases, and this was the case with me and Paula before I was saved, in many cases, the unbelieving husband sort of thwarts the growth of the believing wife. I didn't allow Bibles. I didn't want Paula to be in church. Those kind of things. Now, she did all of that on her own because... She fell in love with Jesus. But the point is, it's really, really difficult. We don't understand the psychological damage it's done. We don't understand sort of the, the slave mentality. You know, it's interesting that when the um, Israelites were taken out of Egypt, the first sign of trouble they cried out to Moses, why did you bring us out here? You should have left us in Egypt. At least we had water to drink. At least we had food to eat. Our mind is such that we remember so selectively. We run into a trial that we're not prepared for. Our faith is not yet prepared for. And we forget all about how bad things used to be. And to ladies like Laura, and so many others, the fear of, well, what's going to happen to our children? Where are we going to go? How are we going to survive? How are we going to eat? Basic things. And these are women who have not had the privilege of being in a loving, healthy, nurturing church environment. Many times they've been beaten down by this world. Many of them by their own parents is where it started. You'll never be good enough. You're never smart enough. You're never, you'll be lucky if you get anybody. And the only way to answer and to provide really help, Steve, is to teach them how much Jesus loves them, how precious they are to God, how valuable they are. And if we'll do that, then the Holy Spirit will do the rest of the work. I think the other thing, Steve, is if we're honest, those of us who have a fix-it mentality, and most of us do, especially men, we've got to be honest enough to say, you know what, truth is we've never really fixed anything. And we lead people to the one who can fix them. You see, you can't fix her situation. You could go over there and pop him in the nose. But Jesus can fix everything. And she's got to learn to trust him, not me, not you, not anybody else. It still breaks my heart. And I've seen women who suffered immensely. Women who have been hurt very, very badly when they chose to stay. But it all boils down to the same thing for everybody. We have to make our own choices. Do they have weak faith? I just think their faith isn't as strong as their problems. I think they're closer to their pain than they are to Jesus. And the only thing that's going to change that is to have them to be with Jesus. It is frustrating to hear these things. But I think the way we can be more effective is to be compassionate, be available, and understand that all these women need is to be closer to Jesus than they are to their pain. 
You pray for me, Steve, and I'll pray for you. 340-9585. Here's another anonymous question. I'm not as good a Christian as I should be, but I hear you tell people that they should share Jesus with others. How can I do that if I'm not a good Christian? Anonymous, the answer is as obvious as the nose on your face. Start being a better Christian. Be with Jesus. Stop making excuses for the things that you're falling short on. Isn't it just like the devil? You can't share Jesus because you keep messing up. He's the one that tempts you to do it. But Anonymous, all you have to do is be with Jesus and you'll be like him. You know, the tone of your question suggests a mentality that says, you know, I have to try harder or do better. You can't do better, even if you try harder, because our faith, our walk with Jesus doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. And so if I'm not with Jesus and I'm trying as hard as I can, I'm still going to mess up over and over and over. But if I'm with him, I'm not going to mess up. I'm not going to sin. And so the key here, Anonymous, is to be with Jesus as much as you possibly can. He's there every day. He's just waiting for you. And one of the things that you'll need is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you can tell people about Jesus. So do better by being with Jesus. Stop making excuses for the reason that you're whatever it is that you're not, you would say you're not a good Christian. Tell people about Jesus. Let the power of the Holy Spirit storm your heart. And things will change. I promise you. I'll repeat the same verse that I repeated earlier. Philemon, verse 6. Paul says, I pray that you'll be active. He's talking to a pastor now. I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. If you're not sharing your faith because you're not, your word's a very good Christian, you don't get it. Be with Jesus. Let him empower you. Stop trying to do good or be good and just be with Jesus. That's really anonymous, the beauty of the Christian life. Here is a question from Matt. This is a question that's near and dear to my heart, Matt. Pastor Ron, I want to invite unbelieving friends to church, but I'm afraid they would not well be welcome. Should I anyway? Matt, if you're in a church where unbelievers are not welcome, you're not in Jesus' church. Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors and drunks and gluttons. He hung around with lepers and women caught in adulterous relationships. Churches where your unbelieving friends need to be, so continue to invite them. The other thing I would say, probably based on some of the people you know, maybe you're misjudging your church a little bit. I can honestly say I personally do not know a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching pastor who doesn't want unbelievers in the seats every time he preaches. I know some churches are small. They like to stay that way. But if you are in a church that isn't welcoming, I don't mean accepting of sin, but welcoming to sinners, then you need to change churches. So you keep inviting them. If people come to you and they're uncomfortable because, well, those people are coming to church, well, then you can, in the most loving way but firm way, rebuke them because they're the object of our faith, winning people to Christ. So it's very important, Matt. You keep inviting them. Jonathan wants to know, is Christianity compatible with reincarnation? The answer is not in the least, Jonathan. Um, it is appointed that a man wants to die and then face the judgment. That's what Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says. There's no second chance. And so if you know a Christian or if you are a Christian who is 
interested in reincarnation. You have stepped outside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity. And I'm just asking you, if Jesus died and was risen from the dead, that's not a reincarnation, that's a resurrection. If in the popular thought about reincarnation that we come back and we live lives based on how we did in this life, you don't understand the faith that we have at all. So, Jonathan, it is not at all compatible. 340-9585, let's go to San Antonio and take our first call today. Brian on line one. Brian, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Well, thank you for having me, Pastor. It's nice talking to you. My pleasure. Thanks. Okay, my uh, my question is about uh, tribulation and the end times. I, I just want to give you a broad view, and you tell me if I'm correct. Okay, the rapture happens. Uh, the believers go to heaven. Uh, the Antichrist takes over for the first three and a half years. He joins the world kingdoms together. And then around at three and a half years, he, you have to take the mark of the beast. Uh, the people that take the mark of the beast can never be saved again. The believers that are Christians after the rapture kind of have to go in hiding or survive on their own. And there's a lot of persecution when they're captured and killed. And then Christ comes back, defeats the devil, and puts them in hell. We have a thousand-year reign with Jesus. The devils are allowed to come back to the earth uh, for 10,000 years. And then mm-hmm. after that, he's thrown into hell forever. Am I correct? Uh, mostly, but some some there's there's some issues. First, when uh, Brian, when G, when Jesus comes back, uh, let me go through the timeline, and, and that way I won't miss okay. anything. Um, cool. When when thank you, Brian. When um, the rapture happens, um, then the world, the stage is set in the world for the the ascendance of the man that we call the Antichrist. Um, he won't call himself that, but we call himself that. Um, um, Jesus will take us to be with him. Then there's going to be a covenant reach between the Antichrist and the nation of Israel, the the people of God, the Jews. Uh, That covenant for the first three and a half years will be a time where people are saying peace and safety. Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse. At the end of the three and a half years, the first three and a half years, and by the way, there will be great tribulation during the first three and a half years. There will be peace and safety in Israel, and the world will hail this man as a great man of peace, but that's that's sort of the, 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 the part of the great tribulation is that we're all going to be fooled by this guy. Uh, when, uh, at the end of three and a half years, he's going to force Jews to worship him, uh, that'll be the abomination that causes desolation. And then literally all hell on earth is going to break loose. Now, for the next three and a half years, there's going to be um, the, the, the judgments that you can read about in the book of Revelation. Those judgments are going to destroy a huge portion of the earth and a huge portion of the population. During that time, the, the seven-year tribulation, um, there are going to be a lot of people saved. There's going to be the ministry of the two witnesses in Jerusalem, Moses and Elijah. Uh, there's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists, sort of 144,000 Apostle Pauls um, going throughout the earth, proclaiming the gospel of God. The difference between them and Paul is that they will be sealed by God and they won't be able to be killed. So imagine 144,000 invincible Apostle Pauls and the world is going to experience the greatest tribulation ever. Now, during that time, most of those Christians are going to, it's going to cost them their lives to worship God. They're going to refuse to take the mark, as you said, and it's going to cost them their lives. Some will make it through the end, but not very many Christians. In the meantime, in Jerusalem, Jews are going to begin to believe because of this ministry as well. Now, at the end of the seven years, Jesus is going to come back you can read about this in Matthew 24 as well. He's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split in two. We're going to be with him, Brian. 
We will have been in heaven with him for seven years. We're going to come back with him, and he's going to establish uh, his kingdom in this world. Now, that kingdom is going to be for 1,000 years. At that time, the great white throne judgment isn't going to occur until after the 1,000 years, but the lake of fire is going to be created by God. And it's not the devil who's going to go in there. Um, the, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to go into the lake of fire. And they're going to be there for a thousand years before anybody else gets there. And when in that thousand years, uh, the devil is going to be chained up. A thousand years, Jesus is going to rule and reign. We're going to rule and reign with him. His kingdom is going to be established. At the end of the thousand years, as you suggested, the devil is going to be let loose because the people born during the Great Tribulation uh, and the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, they're not going to have been able to have made a choice. So to to give them the opportunity to make their own free will choice, the devil's going to tempt them. And sadly, he's going to deceive so many that uh, they're described as like grains of sand on the seashores. So at the end of that temptation, it's only going to be a short time the enemy is going to be able to deceive. At the end of that, then there's going to be the great white throne judgment. At the um, end of the thousand years, uh, those who reject Christ are going to be thrown in, the, the, the devil and the fallen angels included. Um, remember, the Antichrist and the false prophet will have been there for a thousand years already, and then that's going to be where they remain for eternity. Uh, then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will be with Jesus, and then there'll be no more uh, pain, no more evil, no more wickedness whatsoever. So, Brian, you had it mostly right. Just a couple of the details were just a little bit wrong. Does that help? Oh, it does. It, it really does. But it's, uh, a question about the, the Jewish people. Even if they're not going to be saved if they take the, uh, the mark of the beast. Nobody who takes the mark is going to be saved. The Jews, though, aren't going to take the mark, and a third of the Jews are going to be saved. Thanks, Brian. i got to hang up because the right. computer's going to cut us off. Thanks for a good week on the program. You've been listening to the Word of Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Have a great weekend in church with Jesus. We'll see you on Monday, Lord willing. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.